Book Thirteen, Part Three A of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Broadrib. Book Thirteen, A.D. Fifty-four to Fifty-eight, Part Three A. Military actions in the east. Nero entered on his third consulship with Valerius Messala, whose great grandfather, the orator Corvinus, was still remembered by a few old men, as having been the colleague of the divine Augustus, Nero's great grandfather, in the same office. But the honor of a noble house was further increased by an annual grant of five hundred thousand sesterces, on which Messala might support virtuous poverty. Aurelius Cotta, too, and Hetorius Antonius had yearly stipends assigned them by the emperor, though they had squandered their ancestral wealth in profligacy. Early in this year a war between Parthia and Rome about the possession of Armenia, which feebly begun, had hitherto dragged on, was vigorously resumed. For Volgeses would not allow his brother Tiradides to be deprived of a kingdom in which he had himself given him, or to hold it as a gift from a foreign power, and Corbolo, too, thought it due the grandeur of Rome that he should recover what Lucullus and Pompeius had formerly won. Besides, the Armenians, in the fluctuation of their allegiance, sought the armed protection in both empires, though by their country's position, by resemblance of manners, and by the ties of intermarriage they were more connected with the Parthians, to whose subjection, in their ignorance of freedom, they rather inclined." Corbulo, however, had more to struggle against in the supineness of his soldiers than in the treachery of the enemy. His legions, indeed, transferred as they had been from Syria and demoralized by a long peace, endured most impatiently the duties of a Roman camp. It was well known that army contained veterans who had never been on piquet duty or on night guard, and to whom the rampart and the fosse were new and strange sights men without helmets or breastplates, sleek, money-making traders, who had served their time in towns. Corbulo, having discharged all who were old or in ill health, sought to supply their places, and levies were held in Galatia and Cappadocia, and to those were added a legion from Germany, with all its auxiliary cavalry and light infantry. The entire army was kept under canvas, though the winter was so severe that the ground, covered as it was with ice, did not yield a place for tents without being dug up. Many of the men had their limbs frost-bitten through the intensity of the cold, and some perished on guard. A soldier was observed whose hands mortified as he was carrying a bundle of wood, so that sticking to their burden they dropped off from his arms, now mere stumps. The general, lightly clad, with head uncovered, was continually with his men on the march, amid their labors. He had praise for the brave, comfort for the feeble, and was a good example to all. And then, as many shrank from the rigor of the climate and of the service, and deserted, he sought a remedy in strictness of discipline. Not, as in other armies, was a first or a second offense condoned, but the soldier who had quitted his colors instantly paid the penalty with his life. This was shown by experience to be a wholesome measure, better than mercy, for there were fewer desertions in that camp than in those in which leniency was habitual. Meanwhile, Corbulo kept his legions within the camp till spring weather was fairly established, and having stationed his auxiliary infantry at suitable points, he directed them not to begin an engagement. 
The charge of these defensive positions he entrusted to Pascius Orphitus, who had held the post of first-rank centurion. Though this officer had reported that the barbarians were heedless, and that an opportunity for success presented itself, he was instructed to keep within his entrenchments and wait for a stronger force. But he broke the order, and on the arrival of a few cavalry squadrons from the nearest forts, who in their inexperience insisted on fighting, he engaged the enemy and was routed. Panic-stricken by his disaster, those who ought to have given him support returned in precipitate flight to their respective encampments. Corbulo heard of this with displeasure. He sharply censured Pascius, the officers and soldiers, and ordered them to have their quarters outside the lines. There they were kept in disgrace, and were released only on the intercession of the whole army. Tiridatus, meantime, who, besides his own dependencies, had the powerful aid of his brother Bologeses, ravaged Armenia, not in stealthy raids as before, but in open war, plundering all whom he thought loyal to Rome, while he eluded in action with any force which was brought against him, and thus flying hither and thither, he spread panic more widely by rumour than arms. So Corbulo, frustrated in his prolonged efforts to bring on an engagement and compelled, like the enemy, to carry hostilities everywhere, divided his army, so that his generals and officers might attack several points simultaneously. He at the same time instructed King Antiochus to hasten to the provinces on his frontier, as Perasmenes, after having slain his son Radaministus, as a traitor to prove his loyalty to us, was following up more keenly than ever his old feud with the Armenians. Then, for the first time, we won the friendship of the Mashi, a nation which became preeminently attached to Rome, and they overran the wilds of Armenia. Thus the intended plans of Tiradates were wholly reversed, and he sent envoys to ask on behalf of himself and of the Parthians why, when hostages had lately been given and a friendship renewed, which might open the way up to further acts of goodwill, he was thus driven from Armenia, his ancient possession. As yet, he said, Vologeses had not bestirred himself, simply because they preferred negotiation to violence. Should, however, war be persisted in, the Arasids would not want the courage and good fortune which had already been proved more than once by disaster to Rome. Corbulo, in reply, when he was certain that Vologeses was detained by the revolt of Hyrcania, advised Tiradates to address a petition to the emperor, assuring him that he might reign securely and without bloodshed, by relinquishing a prospect in the remote future for the sake of one more solid within his reach. As no progress was made towards a final settlement of peace by the interchange of messages, it was at last decided to fix a time and a place for an interview between the leaders. A thousand troopers, Tiradates said, would be his escort. What force of every kind was to be with Corbulo he did not prescribe, provided they came in peaceful fashion, without breastplates and helmets. Any human being, to say nothing of an old and wary general, would have seen through the barbarian's cunning, which assigned a limited number on one side and offered a larger on the other, expressly with a treacherous intent. For, were they to be exposed to a cavalry trained in the use of arrows, with the person undefended, numbers would be unavailing. Corbulo, however, pretending not to understand this, replied that they would do better to discuss matters requiring consideration for their common good in the presence of the entire armies, and he selected a place partly consisting of gently sloping hills, suited for ranks of infantry, 
partly of a spreading plain where troops of cavalry could manoeuvre. On the appointed day, arriving first, he posted his allied infantry with the king's auxiliaries on the wings, the sixth legion in the centre, with which he had united three thousand men of the third, brought up in the night from another camp, with one eagle, so as to look like a single legion. Teratites, towards evening, showed himself at some distance, whence he could be seen rather than heard. And so the Roman general, without any conference, ordered his troops to retire to their respective camps. The king either suspected a stratagem from those simultaneous movements in different directions, or, intending to cut off our supplies as they were coming up from the Sea of Pontus and the town of Trapezus, hastily withdrew. He could not, however, make any attack on the supplies, as they were brought over mountains in the occupation of our forces. Corbulo, that war might not be uselessly protracted, and also to compel the Armenians to defend their possessions, prepared to destroy their fortresses, himself undertaking the assault on the strongest of all in that province named Volatum. The weaker he assigned to Cornelius Flossus, his lieutenant, and to Insteus Capito, his camp prefect. Having then surveyed the defences and provided everything suitable for storming them, he exhorted his soldiers to strip off his home this vagabond foe, who was preparing neither for peace nor for war, but who confessed his treachery and cowardice by flight, and so to secure alike glory and spoil. Then, forming his army into four divisions, he led one in the dense array of the testudo close up to the rampart, to undermine it, while others were ordered to apply scaling-ladders to the walls, and many more were to discharge brands and javelins from engines. The slingers and artillerymen had a portion assigned to them, from which to hurl their missiles at a distance, so that, with equal tumult everywhere, no support might be given from any point to such as were pressed. So impetuous were the efforts of the army, that within a third part of one day the walls were stripped of their defenders, the barriers of the gates overthrown, the fortifications scaled and captured, and all the adult inhabitants massacred, without the loss of a soldier, and with but very few wounded. The non-military population were sold by auction. The rest of the booty fell to the conquerors. Corbulo's lieutenant and camp prefect met with similar success. Three forts were stormed by them in one day, and the remainder, some from panic, others by the consent of the occupants, capitulated. This inspired them with confidence to attack the capital of the country, Artaxata. The legions, however, were not marched by the nearest route, for, should they cross the river Avaxes, which washes the city's walls by a bridge, they would be within missile range. They passed over it at a distance, where it was broad and shallow. Meantime, Teratites, ashamed of seeming utterly powerless, by not interfering with the siege, and afraid that, in attempting to stop it, he would entangle himself and his cavalry on difficult ground, resolved finally to display his forces, and either give battle on the first opportunity, or by a pretended flight, prepare the way for some stratagem. Suddenly he threw himself on the Roman columns, without, however, surprising our general, who had formed his army for fighting as well as for marching. On the right and left flanks marched the third and sixth legions, with some picked men of the tenth in the centre. The baggage was secured within the lines, and the rear was guarded by a thousand cavalry, who were ordered to resist any close attack of the enemy, but not to pursue his retreat. On the wings were the foot-archers and the remainder of the cavalry, with a more extended line along the left wing, along the base of some hills, 
so that should the enemy penetrate the centre, he might be encountered both in front and flank. Tiradides faced us in skirmishing order, but not within missile range, now threatening attack, now seemingly afraid, with the view of loosening our formation and falling on isolated divisions. Finding that there was no breaking of our ranks from rashness, and that only one cavalry officer advanced too boldly, and that he, falling pierced with arrows, conformed the rest in obedience by the warning, he retired on the approach of darkness. Corbulo then encamped on the spot, and considered whether he should push on his legions without their baggage to our taxata, and blockade the city, on which he supposed Tiradates had fallen back when his scouts reported that the king had undertaken a long march, and that it was doubtful whether Medea or Albania was its destination, he waited for daylight, and then sent on his light-armed troops, which were meanwhile to hover round the walls and begin the attack from a distance. The inhabitants, however, opened the gates of their own accord, and surrendered themselves and their property to the Romans. This saved their lives. The city was fired, demolished, and leveled to the ground, as it could not be held without a strong garrison from the extent of the walls, and we had not sufficient force to be divided between adequately garrisoning it and carrying on the war. If again the place were left untouched and unguarded, no advantage or glory would accrue from its capture. Then, too, there was a wonderful occurrence, almost a divine interposition. While the whole space outside the town, up to its buildings, was bright with sunlight, the enclosure within the walls was suddenly shrouded in a black cloud, seamed with lightning flashes, and thus the city was thought to be given up to destruction, as if heaven was wroth against it. For all this Nero was unanimously saluted emperor, and by the senate's decree a thanksgiving was held. Statues also, arches, and successive consulships were voted to him, and among the holy days were to be included the day on which the victory was won, that on which it was announced, and that on which the motion was brought forward. Other proposals, too, of a like kind were carried, on a scale so extravagant, that Caius Cassius, after having assented to the rest of the honours, argued that if the gods were to be thanked for the bountiful favours of fortune, even a whole year would not suffice for the thanksgivings, and therefore there ought to be a classification of sacred and business days, so they might observe divine ordinances, and yet not interfere with human affairs. A man who had struggled with various calamities and earned the hate of many, was then impeached and condemned, but not without angry feelings towards Seneca. This was Publius Suelius. He had been terrible and venal, while Claudius reigned, and when times were changed he was not so much humbled as his enemies wished, and was one who would rather seem a criminal than a suppliant. With the intent of crushing him, so men believed, a decree of the Senate was revived, along with the penalty of the Cincian law against persons who had pleaded for hire. Suelius spared not complaint or indignant remonstrance, free-spoken because of his extreme age, as well as from his insolent temper, he taunted Seneca with his savage enmity against the friends of Claudius, under whose reign he had endured a most righteously deserved exile. The man, he said, familiar as he was, only with profitless studies, and with the ignorance of boyhood, envied those who employed a lively and genuine eloquence in the defence of their fellow-citizens. He had been Germanicus's quester, while Seneca had been a paramour in his house. Was it to be thought a worse offence to obtain a reward for honest service, with the litigants' consent, than to pollute the chambers of the imperial ladies? 
by what kind of wisdom or maxims of philosophy had Seneca, within four years of royal favour, amassed three hundred million sestercas? At Rome the wills of the childless were, so to say, caught in his snare, while Italy and the provinces were drained by boundless usury. His own money, on the other hand, had been acquired by industry and was not excessive. He would suffer persecutions, perils, anything, indeed, rather than make an old and self-learned position of honour to bow before an upstart prosperity. Persons were not wanting to report all this to Seneca, in the exact words, or with the worst sense put upon it. Accusers were also found who alleged that our allies had been plundered, when Suelius governed the province of Asia, and that there had been embezzlement of public monies. Then, as an entire year had been granted to them for inquiries, it seemed a shorter plan to begin with his crimes at Rome, the witnesses of which were on the spot. These men charged Suelius with having driven Quintus Pomponius by a relentless prosecution into the extremity of civil war with having forced Julia, Drusus's daughter, and Sabina Poppea to suicide, with having treacherously ruined Valerius Asiaticus, Lucius Saturninus, and Cornelius Lupus. In fact, with the wholesale conviction of troops of Roman knights, and with all the cruelty of Claudius. His defence was that of all this he had done nothing on his own responsibility, but had simply obeyed the emperor, till Nero stopped such pleadings, by stating that he had ascertained from his father's notebooks that he had never compelled the prosecution of a single person. Suelius then sheltered himself under Messalina's orders, and the defence began to collapse. Why, it was asked, was no one else chosen to put his tongue at the service of that savage harlot? We must punish the instruments of atrocious acts, when, having gained the rewards of wickedness, they impute the wickedness to others. And so, with the loss of half his property, his son and granddaughter being allowed to retain the other half, and what they had inherited under their mother's or grandmother's wills also being exempted from confiscation. Suelius was banished to the Balearic Isles. Neither in the crisis of his peril, nor after his condemnation, did he quail in spirit. Rumour said that he supported that lonely exile by a life of ease and plenty. When the accusers attacked his son, Nerulinus, on the strength of the men's hatred of the father, and of some charges of extortion, the emperor interposed, as if implying that vengeance was fully satisfied. End of Book 13, Part 3a